We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in on today's episode, part two of my conversation with Ariel Cohen. Ariel is a political analyst and expert on Eastern Europe in the Middle East, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and a Forbes columnist. In case you missed part one of our conversation, you can listen to it in our podcast feed. Ariel shared an amazing and very personal story of what it was like to live in the Soviet Union as a Jewish person and what it took to escape in the 70s. How at age 15 he was pressured to denounce his own parents as traitors and what happened when he refused. In today's episode, we talk about how what is happening in Russia today is intrinsically connected to the collapse of the Soviet Union, hence the title of this episode, The Unfalling Empire. I hope you like it. For those of you who don't follow Russian politics closely, the name that comes up in this conversation that you need to know is the name of Russia's most prominent opposition politician, Alexei Navalny. For the last 15 years, Navalny has been an increasingly uncomfortable thorn in the side of Putin's regime. He investigates corrupt politicians and makes YouTube films that are very popular online. Most recent one that showed Putin's palace was viewed over 100 million times. Russia's political field has been cleared out uh, of essentially any opposition politicians who refuse to side with Putin end up in jail or dead. And so Navalny is quite literally the last man standing. In the summer of 2020, he was poisoned with a chemical weapon, no less, a nerve agent Novichok. I did an episode about that in September. You can go back and find it. Navalny miraculously survived and upon his return to Moscow, he was immediately arrested, which sparked the most recent wave of protests all over Russia about a month ago. Around that time, there was a lot of talk about new sanctions against Russia, but it stood there. Yesterday, on Wednesday, February 17th, as I was editing this episode, European Court of Human Rights, in an extraordinary move, called for Navalny's immediate release, citing danger to his life. Russia declined. Now, today, the news came out that European Union will discuss the new sanctions against Russia next week, the week of February 22nd. And it may be that you're listening to this episode after some decisions have been already made. But no matter what those decisions are, this conversation with Ariel Cohen will give you a bit of a historic and global context to understand this situation. We go back in time to the late 80s and see how we got from there to here. One of my professors in the dissertation committee said, and I quote, uh, John Roach, wonderful guy, loved studying with him, political philosophy guy. He said, 
nobody under the age of 40 should touch the subject of a collapse of an empire. And <laughs> he was kicked out of my dissertation. I kicked him out of my dissertation committee. I re replaced him with John Holman. I wrote and wrote and wrote, and um, it became a book. It's called Russian Imperialism, Development and Crisis. It's available on Amazon. Oh, I'm going to read it. I am. Th that's what I, that's what I was saying. I, I am really interested in that in that subject because it, it it caught me in a weird time. I was too young to understand as it was happening. And then when I was in school, it wasn't yet in the history books. Right. So it didn't teach us what happened. And it was too confusing and people were too cautious to talk about it because there was so much tension in the society. Um, and for me, it still is kind of this not realized uh, were you in the Soviet Union or were you here at the time? I was born and raised in Moscow. I, I went to no, 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 but what, there. what age? What age did you leave? I left after college. Oh, I see, because you, you, you barely have an accent. Um, it abandoned. So <laughs> the um, the narrative of the sort of supporters of um, the Soviet past, and there's a very obscene name for that that I'm not going to say on the air. Uh, can I say it on the air? Yeah, say it because I want to know. Sovka uh, Oh, that's, that's, yeah. uh, how do we translate that into, into uh, English? Soviet era masturbators. Yes. Okay. There you go. <laughs> so people who look at Stalin and the Soviet era and drool, yeah. um, they have this narrative of the evil West causing the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, the American sort of Reagan champions of uh, the right wing, uh, like Peter Schweitzer in his book, Victory, say that Ronald Reagan single-handedly sort of poked at the Soviet Union and it collapsed. And I wrote a critique of that. Yeah, because I think there that's, were massive that powerful. Internal, <laughs> yeah, massive internal, I mean, I love Reagan, but massive internal reasons for deterioration, collapse, and disillusionment yeah. uh, of the leadership, including Gorbachev, they came to a conclusion that this system is doomed. And there was a lot of support of people who could translate their political power, the communists, who could get property. So the collapse of the system, maybe they wanted to keep the union, but they wanted to translate the property from being state-owned to, to be privatized, essentially. Yeah. The other transformation was giving up the external empire, the empire in overseas and uh, Eastern Europe. The external empire included countries that the Soviet Union dominated, Ethiopia, Vietnam, South Yemen, etc., and Eastern Europe that was conquered by Stalin after, during and after World War II. And then unintentionally, as a, re as a reaction to the coup, the Soviet Union itself imploded. Yeah. And the nostalgia is to a great degree about the implosion of the Soviet Union, which interestingly enough coincides with the borders of the Tsarist Empire, with two exceptions, Poland and Finland. So this is where the nostalgia is. And when you start checking, most of the times people who express it are the people that had family ties or sons or daughters or grandchildren of people who were running the system. Yeah. I do not meet very many Georgians, uh, Uzbeks or Kyrgyz, or Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians who are nostalgic to the Soviet Union. There are some, but remember, this was 50% of the population of the empire, only 
were ethnic Russians. Oh, there's a lot to unpack. Oh, yeah. Let's start with why is the relationship with Russia important to America? Because one could say, oh, well, they're no longer a superpower. Their economy is weak. And China is the big guy. Russia's in their pocket. That's what I'm hearing from a lot of people. And there's some truth to that. I keep repeating as a parrot that the US-China uh, conflict is a defining conflict of the 21st century and maybe beyond that, if we manage to survive. Um, China is getting very big economically, militarily, technologically. The Soviet Union never uh, could compare with the United States economically. Technology, especially military technology, yes, but everything else, all the other parameters were uh, much lower, including li the living standard. In China today, clearly the living standard is much lower but they are coming up and up on technology, on uh, economic, economic power and power projection. Look what they're doing with the vaccines now. Vaccines are weaponized as a power projection tool. So is TikTok and uh, FinTech apps and whatnot. Uh, so the, uh, the competition is way beyond just um, you know, ship to ship or plane to plane like it was with the Soviet Union. And uh, where the Soviets played it very well, and that was my master's um, thesis, was uh, ideology and propaganda. They were very good at that. I think they were better, they used to be better than that than China is right now, but there's competition uh, with China on that as well. It was Sun Tzu, the great Chinese strategist, who said that uh, the way you, uh, the, the best way to win the war is without firing a shot. You demoralize your adversary to the point where he just doesn't want to fight anymore. So why in this world where China is becoming so powerful, obviously there's no, no doubt about that. Why would anybody on an average person in America care about anything that's happening with Russia? Well, clearly Russia is the largest uh, country on earth by territory. It has a lot of natural resources. It has very talented people who can make uh, very talented weapon systems. Um, Russia claims, I, I'm not a technical uh, guy, but they claim that their uh, hypersonic um, rockets and airplanes are more advanced and better than ours. I, I don't know. I, I'll, I would need to dig. But regardless, Russia wants to return as a great power. It wants to return in this multipolar world model that, that Russia is one of the strong poles of power in the world. The United States, China, Russia, maybe the EU. The EU is struggling because it's not a real country maybe the EU, maybe in the future, in de decades from now, India, but uh, Russia wants to be in that game. It was not, it's not any longer the bipolar world, the United States and the Soviet Union fighting and everybody else is caught in the middle. China sided with the United States against the Soviet Union after the famous Nixon um, trip uh, to China, I think it was 1972, Nixon and Kissinger going to China meeting with Mao Zedong because Brezhnev was threatening to attack China, actually making proposals to the United States together to nuke China. This is serious stuff. In a couple of interviews, you mentioned that we're in a state of cold war mm -hmm. with Russia. And China. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you mean by this cold war? With Russia, it is a um, very 19th, early 20th century competition between great powers. I must um, give credit to the Russians. The Russians understand power very well. The Russian elites, I think, understand power better than the American elites, you know, if I can generalize. What do you mean by understanding power? Understanding power because power, the, the power toolbox that includes 
military power, um, communications and information operations, like what they did in 2016 with Facebook and whatnot. Uh, and they're, by the way, now the same um, internet bot farms from St. Petersburg are involved in places like Madagascar and elsewhere in Africa, uh, winning elections for uh, pro-Russian politicians, right? Uh, and you know, it's it's probably a commercial operation, and it can be commercialized in many different ways. It can be the client, the local leader, paying, uh, let's say, Mr. Prigozhin. I'm not saying Mr. Prigozhin, but somebody like him uh, for a political campaign, or it could be a gold miner or diamond miner. Uh, that includes some retired Russian intelligence officers, military officers, whatever, paying to get their men in power in a particular uh, African country. Uh, it could be uh, in Europe, uh, Russia, which supported the far left in the Soviet times, now supporting mostly the far right, but also the far left to tear the fabric of uh, European societies. And maybe uh, to a certain degree, uh, there's a lot of scholarship and chatter about Russia trying to support the far right, the, the um, white nationalist movement here, as well as maybe uh, supporting the far left. Uh, so just destabilizing and polarizing a society. Um, economic power, I mentioned already Africa, uh, grabbing assets that have strategic value, uh, energy resources, metals, uh, things like that. Um, so for a country that, as I like to say, the GDP, the the value of its total product uh, is probably under $2 trillion, whereas the US is ten, almost 10 times. The Russian GDP is somewhere between, it's less than Italy and more than Spain. With that, this is a country that is willing to spend uh, the rubles in Syria. And now we found out Sudan, possibly going to uh, Burma. Uh, Minister Shoigu was uh, in uh, Yangon just before the coup, uh, playing a long game with Venezuela keeping its client, uh, Nicolas Maduro, in power in Venezuela, despite all odds. If you were in electoral politics type of situation, there would be people in Moscow saying, really, you know, with the average salary across the board, 25,000 uh, rubles um, a month, uh, three, $400 a month, uh, maybe we should spend our resources not in uh, the Sudan building a naval base, maybe not in Libya, maybe not in Syria, but it's not, you know, there's no discussion. Right. The reason we have to, or America has to think about Russia is because Russia has those ambitions. And it's a great, great power competition in a very sort of raw uh, early 20th century, late 19th century uh, fashion. Uh, and at the same time, with all this natural resources and military technology, Russia being uh, the second fiddle to China as the satellite of China, selling all the crown jewels to China, um, being the uh, parent of the Chinese space program that has military applications, obviously, selling advanced missile technology to China so it can build these ballistic missile aircraft carrier busters. So it's a ballistic missile that can fly 6,000 clicks and hit uh, an American aircraft carrier with a nuclear bomb and take it out. Uh, that's that's the backbone of American military power. Uh, we are in that competition. And Russia and China, if you model it, China is facing east. It's facing towards Taiwan, Japan, uh, South China Sea. And Russia is 
facing west. So they're like standing back to back. So Russia has China's back, China has Russia's back, and they're facing the hostile world together. And so uh, do we have that power when the focus is on domestic, the focus on recovery from COVID? We are in the middle of a huge budget deficit, way, way above and beyond what the IMF and the World Bank recommends to other countries when they're looking at their deficits. Our national debt is probably 140% of our GDP and growing. In other words, what we, what we owe is 140% bigger than what we generate the whole country in one year. So how are we going to fund uh, everything that is needed, the military, the foreign policy, the intelligence, the propaganda, whatever, whatever you call it, information operations. Uh, when, when we're loading ourselves with all these entitlements and debt that will make it so much more difficult to be the number one global power. Knowing that Russia has all these ambitions uh, geopolitically, and one of the things that we hear in Russia is the anti-West sentiment and this whole using of um, CIA and Department of State as this boogeyman and using it against the opposition in there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, first of all, um, any regime uh, that has um, the lack of internal legitimacy uh, will appeal to foreign threats to cause a circle of the wagons effect, right? Uh, Trump needed China to whip up American nationalism, and there were real issues with China, stealing of intellectual property, um, stealing you know, technology, um, infiltrating scientists here. So there were real issues, but he also used it as a tool uh, for nationalist mobilization. Uh, Russia likes to have enemies because the regime needs enemies. Why? Because that's how the nationalists roll, right? That's, that's what the Iranians uh, whipping this uh, hysteria against Israel, the great Satan, the small Satan, Israel and the United States. Why? Because it's essentially an oppressive, non-democratic regime that consolidates its political support uh, by uh, having the, this boogaboo. So basically, because they're, they don't have real support and they don't have real true authority and trust of the population. They have a lot of support. I don't buy that. Even with his low numbers, uh, Putin has at least um, 50%, uh, depends how you ask the question, but Navalny's numbers are rising and they're very concerned about Navalny. And Navalny is hitting year after year, film after film, into uh, the real solar plexus of that system where it hurts, meaning the corruption. And they clearly don't like it. I said many years ago that um, a smart system would take somebody like Alexei Navalny, make him a deputy prosecutor general for uh, white collar crime, and then maybe promote him to deputy minister of justice, and maybe eventually make him a minister of justice or make him the chairman of the Judiciary Committee of the Duma. And all my Russian friends said, yes, but not in Russia. This will never happen. Uh, you cannot integrate him into the existing corrupt system. It's interesting that, that you mentioned that because, well, he is attacking the system, but he's not attacking the system. He's attacking the individuals who are corrupt. And, and how can 
how can the system accept him if he is attacking uh, attacking them? Like, how would they uh, accept him? Like, there is a theory, uh, one of the conspiracy theories around his origin is that he is the Kremlin's project and that Kremlin uses him to weaken those oligarchs and those, as they call, uh, parts of Kremlin that are falling out of line. It's a false argument, uh, number one, uh, because whatever you're doing, you don't want to be killed. So you can argue, well, maybe one, as they say, one tower of the Kremlin. This is a very internal baseball discussion. People who don't follow Russian politics very closely, they may not follow that the model is that they're competing factions. And I believe there are competing factions. So one faction that didn't like what Navalny was doing, uh, poisoned Navalny, but the other faction was supporting him. I don't know. And also Putin was always a taboo. Medvedev, also the number two guy in, this, in the country. He did a movie about Medvedev's holdings and assets, including the pond with a with duck, yep. remember? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, but what I'm trying to say is I heard Navalny uh, in 2015, I believe, uh, in Philly. And I was amazed how open, fearless, uh, fierce uh, he was. And um, I believe, I think, what, what you see is more or less what you get. Yes, there are factional struggles. This is not to say that I believe that tomorrow Navalny can topple the regime. He does a lot to delegitimize it, to demonstrate the corruption. I think for younger people like yourself who grew up uh, knowing one leader, Mr. Putin, that's getting a little bit tired. So while I'm not saying that you know we're on the verge of a revolution, I think longer term, uh, there is a question mark uh, how this regime is going to continue uh, with its legitimacy, support, public attitudes, slowly but surely deteriorating. Yeah. And here we kind of go back to the geopolitical side of it. And maybe that's what we could wrap up on is the other origin theory of Navalny is that he is the CIA project and um, that similar to how in the end of towards the end of Soviet empire America was exercising all kinds of ways of undermining the regime that's what Navalny is and that and uh, we're all being paid by the Department of State everybody anybody who's talking about him and anybody who is calling for change uh, is a right. traitor and is a yep, foreign yep. agent and all of that and so as somebody who remembers and who has been part of the collapse of Soviet Union in a very real way, um, what, what do you well, think about that? Well, it's even a more insidious and vicious argument than the previous one that Navalny is a um, pawn or a part of this internecine struggle in the Kremlin between different factions, different towers. Um, if you go back in history, the accusation of treason in Russia uh, was used. Context doesn't mean collaboration. Uh, the fact that Navalny studied for six months at Yale doesn't mean that he was recruited by the CIA. And I honestly, I don't think CIA is good enough to run Navalny as an operation. But the vicious part is that they use foreign alliances of for, uh, being an agent of a foreign power as the ultimate political weapon. And again, going back to the life of my grandfather, everybody in the 1930s 
was accused of being a Polish spy, a Japanese spy. Leon Trotsky, the great competitor of Stalin's, was accused of being a Nazi spy. Trotsky, who was Jewish, uh, nevertheless was accused of being a German spy. So when you want to exterminate your political enemy, you say that he or she is a foreign agent. So there's this potentiality of sanctions coming towards Russia now. So what do you think that will do? Um, I don't think uh, that uh, the U.S. will impose sanctions that will you know, trigger some kind of an apocalyptic um, scenario. Uh, if we're talking about sanctions uh, because of Navalny's poisoning and incarceration, um, we don't have a track record of our State Department imposing even in the Soviet era where the competition was extremely uh, violent at times. Uh, we did not impose sanctions because of how they treated Andrei Sakharov and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Nobel-winning physicist and the great Nobel-winning author. And I'll mention here that both Andrei Sakharov and Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, were labeled as foreign uh, and American uh, agents in the Soviet Union. Uh, so um, I think there'll be some kind of a sanction uh, imposed now, but at the same time, we have other fish to fry. Uh, clearly, the Biden administration is very interested in arms control, and I think they're right. I, I don't think we should let uh, the genie of arms control out of the bottle, or arms race, rather, out of the bottle. It's extremely expensive. It's dangerous. Both the United States and Russia can e exterminate uh, every, li every living being on the surface of our countries several times over, okay? We have 1,550 uh, nuclear strategic warheads and hundreds if not thousands of tactical nuclear warheads um, that are not even counted. So we don't need another arms race. And I think there will be other um, areas where the countries were talking, still talking to each other, uh, countering violent extremism, terrorism from groups like ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda, actually the US military and the Russian military were on the phone daily coordinating um, their operations in Syria with our Kurdish allies and whatnot. Um, so I think it will be a bumpy ride, but I don't think it's going to be a complete and ultimate break point, especially because the EU, the Germans and the French are not ready for it. So we cannot be more European than the Europeans. We will need to compare notes with the Europeans. Uh, I know they like Joe Biden. Uh, I know they like uh, Anthony Blinken. I hope for an improvement in relations with Europe and more coordination on the Russian uh, dossier, but I do not foretell um, a huge disaster. Now, if Mr. Putin decides to reinvade Ukraine or do something really stupid um, in the Baltic states, for example, try to grab the Baltic states, things will be different. But I met Mr. Putin 10 times. He's not a stupid man. On that note, let us hope that he will remain smart and that Iron Curtain doesn't fall and I get to visit my family. Thank you so much, Ariel. That was very, very informative. Pleasure. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed. Let us know what you think. Shoot us a message on social media or via email or leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice. You can find all the contact info in the show notes or on our website. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. 
someone who's into politics and global affairs, someone who has stocks of Russian oil and gas companies, or someone who likes Russian models, or maybe somebody who likes Dolph Lundgren in Rocky IV. I don't know. Just click share and send your friend a link. Let them know you're thinking about them and help us grow the show. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. Country, you can keep the rest. This is my country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.